This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, so we uh, we said that the first Friday of every month was going to be the drive time thingamabob, and then because I'm what um, uh, social scientists call really stupid. Um, <laughs> I completely forgotten that we were also talking about changing the schedule for the group dispatch podcast to Friday mornings and the timing just of doing a drive time and then doing the dispatch pod just made no sense. So we're actually doing this at drive time because we're, we are nothing if not faithful to our intent, but we are doing it um, in the, uh, um, in the evening um drive time so the evening the rush hour on thursday so if we'll try to stay away from anything um too news dependent uh in the case that it feels too stale uh but that shouldn't be too much of a problem and so uh returning as per usual are uh ryan brown of the dispatch and um and and that guy Denton guy who was my RA at the American Enterprise Institute. Uh hello guy. Hello Jonah. Thank you for thank you for indulging me. Um it's 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 it's, it's it seems like that's the defining feature of our relationship. It certainly is. After that visa process, that's all it's characterized by. <laughs> um and so uh just so I can catch up on the uh the domicile thing are you guys still roommates <laughs> guy <laughs> i mean technically technically i don't see ryan a whole lot so not really yeah. yeah but no guy you did find housing correct i did yes. i did you did and i'd like to is shout it a, out is on. it a viking range uh refrigerator box or 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 what <laughs> As always, Jonah, the emotional support is greatly appreciated. But no, it is an actual apartment that someone in the office is. Someone in the office was looking for a sublease. I know this is riveting material for all of the people listening. And that was actually a point people may find interesting uh, that we were talking about behind the scenes not too long ago when Charlie Cook came on. One of the more horrifying aspects of immigration and God knows there are many of them, is that you're, uh, when, you tried, when you move to this country and try to set up a bank account and overhaul all of your finances, your credit score and credit history does not transfer. 
There's no way to get it to transfer or to get it to transfer through parents or relations or anything like that. So uh, in professional terms, you're screwed and you have to start from scratch, which wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing if it wasn't the case that every landlord and car dealer and phone company wants to see a credit score to do business with you to know that you're trustworthy. Right. So that's a, a delightful hurdle to navigate. I really don't know how a lot of people who immigrate manage it because I found so many hurdles even after coming over in recent weeks that are just inexpressibly irritating. But things are, I have a bank account and everything now, so things are all looking Jim Dandy, as the Americans would say. You would just think like, because capitalism is friggin' awesome that that somebody would figure out a way to monetize this problem because presumably, you know, uh, you know, I mean, maybe you'd have to pay in chickens or something, but there are probably (laughs) a good number of immigrants that would pay some lawyer or consultant a certain amount of money to solve this problem for them. And yet, like, I mean, Charlie told me about this problem years ago and the fact that it's still a problem and there's no like private sector solution to it, I think is kind of fascinating or, or at least weird. No, but well, weird, the weirdest thing and something that is like out of like something out of Terry Gilliam's Brazil, it's so absurd to before you can do any of this, you need a social security number to even count as existing in this country. Mm-hmm. You can't get a social security number isn't included in the visa or anything like that. The law firm arranging the visa can't help with it. There's no way to get it as part of the visa process until you arrive in the country. I found out the first weekday that I was in that even once you get in the country, for some inexplicable reason, you have to wait two weeks to get an appointment to get this number. And then once you manage to get an appointment, two weeks being this completely arbitrary time frame. I have no idea why this was chosen or why this is the case when the government would have to process you to begin with to approve the visa. After you get the appointment, you then have to wait another potentially three weeks just to get the social security card in the mail. And there's no way of learning what the number is until you get the physical card. (laughs) So I only (laughs) just got a bank account and everything open a couple of weeks ago. Thankfully, that wasn't so bad once I had it, but it's uh, it's tremendous fun, Jonah. In short, you so know, that, I, what what uh, what social security number did you get? Oh, yeah, what's the number? Would you like all of my bank details? <laughs> yeah, can we do a raffle for the diehard remnant listeners? <laughs> do it on Dispatch Live. Um, how about how about every Friday you reveal one more number? In your social <laughs> <Yes. security. laughs> we'll, see, we'll see if you're employed long enough to get us the whole yeah, Can we get through my bank? Can we get through my passport? Let's make a game of it. But, you know, look, I mean, like, I don't, I don't want to go all, you know, Fox News on you, but, you know, if... If if you don't love the way if you don't like the way American bureaucracy works, you can yeah, go man. back to your tiny little backwater <laughs> yeah, country. Exactly. Oh, I stole this job from an American already, Jonas. So I'm part of the problem. <laughs> and you know, uh, and fortunately, in 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 England, there's no bureaucracy whatsoever. It everything is right. like you know just turnkey, um, no paperwork required. Well, there's no functional civilization in England at all. People still feast on the carcasses of sheep in the streets and wow. trade their decrepit relatives as currency. It really is that awful. 
And it rains. Mm. And it does rain. Yeah. <laughs> it um, rains. I'd like to personally shout out uh, Mr. Tim Stevens, who emailed me and Guy with the possible room option for Guy. Jonah, you probably don't know this, but at the end of all of these drive times, since uh-huh. Guy has been living with us, uh-huh. I have put out a personal call <laughs> to to get him a room to have get you him really out of my house yes at the end like right where it goes and then it before it goes i've i've butt in and said the offer keeps getting raised i think the first time i was like please help the next time was like i will let you say no you won't this is a podcast get guy a room. <laughs> none of this is authorized by the way <laughs> i know i know no. and usually i run this stuff by you but i was so desperate i was like no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna ask him and so Tim Stevens responded. Thank you, Tim. Guy is set now. Oh, so Tim Stevens is the guy who hooked him up. He he, he sent us an option. Guy, this isn't what you went with, right? Who's Tim Stevens? Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, this was not, this was not, what, I, not what I went He's with. He's a loyal fan. <laughs> Thank not you, anymore. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tim, for your patronage. It is appreciated. See, yeah. If I'd known you were doing this, we could have done, like, for Dispatch Live or something, we could have ended it <laughs> with, like, true. a... Like a Sarah McLaughlin style video, <laughs> right? Where they play that music with the yeah. with the animals in cages and that kind of stuff. We put, yeah. put I have a kennel that we could use yeah. for like when I've flown my dogs. We could put him in a enough. kennel and he could look yeah. out with those watery eyes through the bars yeah. and like yeah. find him a home. <laughs> yeah. um, that would have been awesome. Find him a home. And all we can offer is a one line in a podcast. Yeah. And, and, look, and hey, look, we we can fingers crossed this new domicile will fall through and we can still do right. it because the right. important thing is the good content not like yeah, his exactly. living conditions yeah. or anything like that I, I, yeah i don't care about that um the government share as hell doesn't so i should even review <laughs> um so youngins how does it feel to be like a like fully sentient human beings during a time of global conflagration and conflict it's weird dude <laughs> quality content already <laughs> yeah. profound analysis and insight no it I, I actually i've been thinking it's it's bizarre watching it all play out on social media yeah because like i think about and that's like, new for me too really you know right yeah, yeah yeah so like i'm thinking about like my grandparents who like lived through wars and like they read the papers but like that was really kind of all the they didn't really get the personal stories that we've been getting like this the viral yeah. stuff that we've seen on Twitter and everything is, is amazing. And I think it's kind of galvanized the world behind Ukraine, um, which it, that, that, that is really interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it, if you think about it, like, um, and I'm not trying to make light of, of anything, but like yeah. the images from the Holocaust didn't make it right widely out to well after world war two, you know? Right. Um, right. And presumably if something like, well, then again, you know, the stuff going on with the Uyghurs and we don't get much footage of that. So, I mean, it is possible to close off the world to some of these things, but still yeah. you would think, you know, if, if, if world war two, if, if, if this turns into world war three, heaven forbid. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and barring nuclear weapons, which my understanding does interfere with Wi-Fi, So you might not see, <laughs> um, some of that stuff, but like, yeah, you would see, you know, like the, like the, like Hitler's blitzkrieg, Thousands of people would have it on phones, and, you know, right. the French resistance, right. um, you know, the Maquis or whatever would would be sending out Instagram stuff all the time. And, and yeah, it's kind of wild to think about. And 
I have to say, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of real way, I, as much as anybody, I dunk on social media as being a problem. And I think it is mm -hmm. a problem in all sorts of ways we've talked about a million times, but yeah. this is one of these areas where social media is actually really good and important. And yeah, it was during the, what was it? The green re revolution in Iran, you got some of this stuff and, mm -hmm. and, um, well, the, uh, shoot, what was it called in Egypt? I'm blanking on it. The, the Arab Spring. The Arab Spring. Yeah. Like that wouldn't have happened without social media. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it's rare I put stuff in the positive column for a lot yeah. of this, for social media stuff, but this is, this is one of them, I guess. Um, yeah. It is scary to think about though, how much power those companies have. Yeah. Like there's, there's a war playing out over, over Twitter and like, it's just one guy running it, you know, like yeah. it's still like, and I don't know what to do about that, if anything, but it is kind of. Well, it's also, it's, it's interesting to think about that Putin's so spectacularly miscalculated how to do this thing mm -hmm. that, you know, cause so, you know, as we discussed on dispatch live and elsewhere, the original rationale for this was that they were liberating the Donbass region, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. Just basically Eastern Ukraine, because there are these oppressed Russian speakers who needed to be liberated from the drug addict neo-Nazis who run Ukraine. Right. And like, if they had actually had a good plan for that, yeah. um, or if their theory that the Russian speakers in that region would actually have welcomed the Russian yeah. troops, the quote unquote information war would have played out really differently and you'd have a lot mm -hmm. of the the guys who were like repugnantly pro-putin at the beginning you know 10 days ago they would have been recycling a lot of the sort of russian propaganda social media stuff because there would have been a counter narrative to promote but like he just so completely screwed this up it's not like russia can start beaming images of you know Ukraine and Kharkiv being essentially, you know, carpet bombed or not, if not carpet bombed, that's a real thing, but you know, cluster bombs and artillery, indiscriminate artillery fire. That's like, that's not a good narrative for the right. Russian regime right. for the Russian people. Right. Cause they're like, right. you told us we were going to be liberators. You told us that these people wanted us to do this and, yeah. and you didn't, you know, but so it, it could be that I'd be much more critical of social media. If the, just the, the basic fact pattern had been just a little different. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe we don't know it but maybe social media has done a really good job of of staving off staving off or deleting some of, some the of Russian that stuff. bots yeah, yeah on off of off of everything i don't know we might never know but all of this um, may be true but i still think all of these platforms are poison and a plague on humanity and one of the worst things to have happened to our civilization true, guy, in recent years guy you don't have any social media do you no i think it's all vile I think it does nothing but rot your brain and waste your time. I can see some utility to it on a personal level. There were people who I've lost contact with over the years who I used to only have contact with on social media and wish I were still in contact with. But otherwise, no. Yeah. <laughs> I find all of it repugnant. I'm fully in the um, Brett Stevens, Kevin Williamson camp on this, especially with Twitter. I think giving everyone on the planet a platform to have a public opinion on everything is a stupid mm -hmm. idea, mm -hmm. <laughs> an inherently stupid I idea. Can't, I can't disagree. I'm on all of it, but I can't disagree with you at all. 
Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm not going to mount a stirring defense of any of yeah. this. You know, <laughs> I mean, the 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 only tweets that I do that I am convinced are an unalloyed good for the universe are the dog tweets. Oh, oh, I can. Right. Yeah. You know. Um, right. And I try. You know, people think. You know. You know, people don't appreciate the fact that it would be really tempted, tempting to do a lot of politicized stuff. And like I, I probably three years, five years ago, I did some. You know, Zoe digging a hole in the in the sand saying, Oh, look, Zoe's looking for Hillary's emails. But you know, I, I don't do any of that stuff anymore because I, what yeah. I don't, the whole point of the, not the whole point, but a big part of the dog stuff is to make it apolitical. And, yeah. and that was like, you know, um, dog rates, there's a Twitter account yeah. that, you know, gives every dog like a 14 out of 10, you know, and that yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I love that account and I still follow it and then look at it from time to time. Mm -hmm. But you know, you guys know what o guy you should know what O'Sullivan's law is, um, but do you know what O'Sullivan's law is? No. Oh, I oh, used to um, go to John, Irish, as in John, as in John O'Sullivan. Yeah, yes. There was an Irish pub called O'Sullivan's I frequented. Um, there are. I want to. I, I don't want to traffic in stereotypes, but there are many <laughs> pubs with the name O'Sullivan in it. I'm just going to put it out there. People can fact check me if they like. Um, well, there's one in Arlington I've been to a lot. Okay, there may be one that you've frequented, but <laughs> that's not the only one. Um, okay, got it. Uh, you know, uh, but yeah. So John O'Sullivan had this. You know, what's become known as O'Sullivan's Law, which is any expressly any institution that is not expressly conservative becomes liberal over time. And mm. um, I'm not I'm not sure it's an iron law, but it's a really good rule of thumb. And you look at the Ford Foundation, you look at all these kinds of places that were started by, you know, captains of industry. I mean, like the friggin Hewlett Packard Foundation is which is like or I, I think it's Hewlett Packard, but maybe it's just Hewlett or Packard. I can't remember. But like these guys were like inventors you know, like the cream of capitalism the great thing about capitalism you know innovators and all that kind of stuff and now this foundation is out there subsidizing you know quote-unquote research to prove that free markets are bad and that capitalism is bad mm -hmm. and that we need to come up with a <laughs> new thing and this is all very joseph strumpeter about how first generation you have entrepreneurs captains of industry second generation their kids basically become lawyers and like their third or fourth generation they all become sort of uh, spoken word transgender poets, um, you know, because they all sort of drift over time. And yeah. um, uh, anyway, dog rates, he made this terrible mistake. He just started like, you know, he made this mistake a while ago where he started raising money for Planned Parenthood and oh. leaning into this pro-choice thing. And, and I have no problem with the guy being pro-choice. Right. I got lots of friends who are pro-choice. I mean, I disagree with, I'm not talking about the policy stuff. I'm just yeah, talking yeah. about like the dog rates thing was appealing to conservatives right. and liberals and then you paint over it this virtue yeah. signaling for one side thing and you know he yeah. lost a lot of followers and a lot of people were like i don't you know i don't need this yeah. and I, I think that's a big problem where everyone feels like you know like actors at at the oscars who um who feel compelled to show how brave they are by telling everyone in the audience at the Oscars, exactly what they want to hear, yeah. right? You know, it's like <laughs> exactly. when yeah. George Clooney Brave. does his whole, you know, or Robert De Niro does his whole anti-Trump stuff, and Lord knows my positions yeah. on Trump are known. Yeah, you know, it's like everyone salutes the courage and the bravery of doing it when, in fact, it's pure virtue signaling 
to an audience that is entirely receptive to it. And it, it intrudes politics into parts of our lives that should be politics free. And I think the Twitter thing is, is a big part of that problem. In some ways, that's a recent development, though, because people, no one now remembers, it's never discussed, but when Michael Moore uh, gave his anti-Bush speech at the Oscars in whatever year that would have been, I can't think, but he was resoundingly booed by the audience. It did not go over Mm, well. Steve Martin came out and joked about the Teamsters beating him up in the parking lot. <laughs> there was a sense that it was inappropriate. And but that, that was like right at the beginning of the Iraq war. Is that right? I mean, I, I don't I, know. I can't remember. I can't but, remember even though it was either Iraq related or uh, economy related. Yeah. I mean, um, but I mean, there's, I mean, I think that's kind of sui generis because Michael Moore is such a terrible human being. Um, yeah. And he probably couldn't <laughs> read the moment very well, but like, Robert De Niro famously did, not Robert De Niro, um, uh, uh, the Godfather, um, Marlon yeah. Brando. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he went on a whole riff on like Native Americans when he won an Oscar in the seventies. Well, he didn't go. He didn't accept it. He sent a Native American. Oh, is that what it was? It. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. He wasn't there. He won. I think he won for the Godfather. Yeah. And uh, I think there's audio. I'll try to play it right here. The winner is. Marlon Brando in The Godfather. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and The Godfather, Miss Shasheen Littlefeather. Hello, my name is Sasheen Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening, and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me. And on television, in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening, and that we will, in the future, our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity. Thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando. So anyway, um, but the, but the one thing on the one thing on the dog raider thing because it reminded me of Room Raider, mm-hmm. which and Room Raider pandemic, went that way too, right? Oh my gosh! Like and like we were it was during the pandemic. We all needed something. Like yeah. we wanted something to like just kind of get us through the the pandemic and bring us together on Twitter and everyone had to do remote interviews. No one really liked doing remote interviews, but it was just fun little thing that people were doing. And then they, they went like crazy. Like they, no matter what Republican you were, if you were any type of Republican, you got a zero out of 10. Right. 
And look, and I was like, I mean, what a great opportunity to just be like, you know what? This one thing doesn't matter politically, but they ruined it. I get thinking Republicans are bad. I don't paint with the sure. brush that he does and yeah. all that kind of stuff. But it is just a fact of history that many, many people that we think are bad often have very nice rooms. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes. It's, it's yes. a fact. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we recorded this morning, which feels like a million years ago, given how this day has gone. Um, uh, conversation with my friend and former boss, Arthur Brooks. Guy, you yeah. didn't listen to that, right? I did. Cool. Did so you? I had to make the notes on it. After. Okay, but I, you weren't, I, I didn't see you on the thing. And, you know, usually. I was yeah. there in spirit, Jonah. I felt it. I felt it. Um, uh, He's to blame for all the technical issues. What did you guys think about it? I loved it. I am an Arthur Brooks fan, big time, big time. Um, Guy, you're you're English still. Sorry, um, you guys don't believe in happiness. Um, yeah, about it. What did you think about it? Oh, meh, overrated. Another boring moment. <laughs> no, I am <laughs> careful. <laughs> Instant deportation. No, I I really enjoyed it too. Brooks is a Brooks is eloquent, but also naturally very genial and charismatic in a in a more unassuming kind of way so it was it's fun to listen to but also quite edifying and brings up things you wouldn't consider but the most the most interesting part of it to me is remains um the most interesting part of it to me was in the section where you asked him about japanification mm-hmm. and the strange new trend of loneliness and mm-hmm. Americans being increasingly deprived of real connections and yeah. communities collapsing and young people in particular being isolated and struggling increasingly with mental issues and so on. And his response to that, his response to that was good, but I think this is still a major issue that yeah. needs to be resolved and the solutions that need to be calibrated for it. I don't know where exactly they're going to come from. Policy alone isn't going to do it. It's going to take a big cultural shift. And I think to reach that big cultural shift, it's going to take time to, first of all, we're going to have to give it time moving beyond the pandemic and the period where everyone was living life exclusively on Zoom to see how mm-hmm. this has actually affected people in the long run and whether that wretched experience has made a lot of people see the light and realize, no, this isn't healthy. The virtual <laughs> world is fake. It isn't real. There's nothing fulfilling about it. Let's go outside and live properly again. Or yeah. if it's actually encouraged people just to retreat further into these synthetic cocoons that are now increasingly prevalent and that it's never been easier for people to submerge themselves in. Yeah. I mean, I go back and forth about it. Um, after the, you know, the, the great influenza, you know, a hundred years ago, you had the roaring twenties, right? People mm-hmm. were like, let me out, let me have a good time. Um, you had flappers and, 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 mm-hmm. you know, all that stuff that was probably aided a little bit by the culture of prohibition, which made it like, even more exciting and transgressive to go to a party and have a drink kind of thing. Yeah. But you also had a huge economic boom because of pent up 
demand. You know, some of that had to do with World War One too, of course. Um, but it's it's weird, you know, like as a as a Gen Xer, um, and I use that purely in this context to connote my co- demographic cohort rather than any <laughs> sort of like <laughs> cultural assumptions. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, you know, like. And also as a conservative, like I, I kind of considered youthful exuberance to be a constant of human nature, right? It was like yeah. young people are yeah. all torqued up on hormones and they <laughs> like to have a good time and they do stupid things because they're young and they think they're invulnerable and all that kind of stuff. And so like the idea that young people stop acting are, are stop are not acting in the way that I just sort of thought was true of every society everywhere you know i mean like every poet and roman historian and you know you go down a list they have you know there are all these quotes about young people behaving like young people because young people behave like young people mm-hmm. and like young people aren't behaving like young people anymore is really kind of creepy and weird and I, I agree with you there's no obvious immediate public policy solution i do think you know some robust restrictions on online porn would help um, yeah. and, um, and, you know, this is something, this is a Yuval point, um, but I agree with it. I am increasingly sympathetic to the idea that, you know, I, I let me back up. I don't like all the breakup, big tech talk and the, the sort of the way both the left and the right talk about how, when they talk about reforming big tech, they basically want big tech to do what they want. Right. Which is different than like actually fixing problems. But um, there is nothing inconsistent with conservative principles and First Amendment principles to say there's just going to be a mandatory 18 years or older to have a social media account. Yeah. So you're not going to have 14-year-old girls with Instagram and Snapchat doing all of this terrible mm-hmm. stuff to their brains until they're a little older to, to deal with it. And of course, there'll be compliance problems and all that kind of stuff, right. but you can set up a legal regime that does that. It's very straightforward. You put in your date of birth and um, and you give parents the ability to say, to notify companies that say if their 14-year-old has a fake account, um, uh, to say, hey, my daughter's too young, please cancel this account, and it's just canceled. And and you don't need to make it so ironclad that you catch every scofflaw because some people will get away with it. But if you take away the critical mass, so the like, there's only like one or two people in your senior class in high school or in your junior sophomore class in high school that have social media accounts. The thrill of it is gone because you're not doing this pinging back and forth with each other. There'll right. still be jackass group text things and kids will find ways to work around it, but it's at least yeah. pushing in the right direction. Yeah. Um, There's, there needs to be so, some way to enforce it because that we ha- like when I kind of grew up when social media was growing up and you couldn't technically have Facebook unless you were 16 or something, but right people just lied and there was just no, they didn't confirm it. There was just no way of finding out if you were actually 16 or not. But, um, but did your parents know you had a Facebook account? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I, I forgot if I waited until I was 16 or not. Yeah. Um, no, I, no, I must not have because I think I had it in grade school, but yeah, like they, it was like a conversation. They, they didn't, I didn't sneak it, Mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, they knew it was happening. But if, if we got the laws in place that say Saurabh wanted, and all of your parents' property and bank accounts were forfeit to the state if they found right. out that they allowed you to have a social media account. 
they might have enforced a no social media account thing. Probably. Yeah. Probably. <laughs> probably. Um, I, th- I think it, I think it's always good to try. You know, think restrictions like that will always be circumvented. It, it makes me think of ratings on video games and mm-hmm. extreme movies. I remember when I was in what would equate to elementary school, eight, nine, ten years old. Every boy in the class almost played Grand Theft Auto. Right. And their parents were fully aware of what right. Grand Theft Auto was, or at least loosely, yeah. and didn't care and still let them. But yeah. having the rating there and having the restrictions so that the pimply guy behind the counter in the store <laughs> can't sell one of those to a six-year-old is better <laughs> on, on a purely into, on a principle level and on a practical level than not having it at all. I, yeah, I mean, like the same is true with that. I mean, yeah. I, I grew up before there were explicit video games. We did, you know, Atari twenty six hundred and television things. Which were, Pac-Man, Jonah, and Pac-Man, and there was uh, <laughs> uh, like I re- I had a Coleco uh, Pong console, which I thought was the state of the art technology that would be hard <laughs> to improve upon uh, when I was a little kid. But you know, it was hard to get into an R rated movie. You know, it just was. Right. And it doesn't mean yeah. I never saw one, but it, you know, until I turned 17, but it was, you know, you do these things at the margin and I think it, it's a way to sort of nudge the culture in the right direction. And people say you, that kind of stuff never succeeds. I mean, I, I can feel Catherine Mangu Ward's ears burning <laughs> as I say all these things, but like, um, you know, I had, I had big problems with the war on smoking stuff, but the war on smoking worked. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, people don't smoke anymore and mm-hmm. not in anything close to the numbers that they did when I was a kid. Similarly, like I, we used to make fun of people who put their seatbelts on. We just thought mm-hmm. it was just like the lamest milk toasty thing. And now mm-hmm. no one thinks twice about it. And they shouldn't. You should right. put your seatbelts on. So there are ways at the margins to sort of influence the culture. And then the trick is in, to, in consonance with conservative principles is to do what is required and then get out of the way not right. like say okay we were successful at this now we're you know like hey we work for seatbelts and smoking now let's go for guns right i mean there's yeah, like yeah, yeah. you need to know where the lines are on these kinds of things it's it's kind of amazing to me that we all realize that social media is having a very negative impact on all of our lives it's making people our age guy very lonely and very sad and it's not good at it's all. Okay, yet, Ryan, I'm here. For you. <laughs> don't give up just yeah, yet. That's true. You you don't have any social media, as we discussed, so you're fine. It's me I'm worried about. Um, no, but but there doesn't seem to be like no one's really doing anything about it. Yeah. You know, like we're sitting here talking about it, and people like like Yuval and a lot of people on that come on the remnant, like they're trying to do something about it, but there's not a lot of lawmakers that seem super concerned. Well, Nick Clegg, who technically ran the United Kingdom for years, was defending Facebook in that recent lawsuit. So that tells you everything you need to know about where the politicians stand. Yeah. So years ago, when my daughter was little, um, you know, she was always interested in like the TV stuff from my generation that I grew up on. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how we got into it, but I was singing the theme song from Transformers. Um, And, uh, (laughs) And I, I know. called Can up you sing on, it for us. Uh, I, I could. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I called up the a YouTube video of the opening, you know, thing, you know, Transformers more than meets the eye. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, um, nice. how to fight the evil forces of 
the Decepticons. So it's not exactly <laughs> like Broadway material. But um, no, you're the greatest showman, Joe. Pretty good. I can yeah, see pretty it. Good. <laughs> and uh, um, and in the middle of a YouTube video, some absolute schmuck had changed the dialogue and put in all this like <gasps> porny, gross, expletive <laughs> oh, no. stuff. And I'm showing to my like five year old daughter, and I'm like, "What's going on?" Oh, and, and it kind of inspired me to uh, my friend Nick Schultz, uh, who used to be at AEI and was a television producer with me in a previous life, and one of my closest uh -huh. friends. We wrote a piece together, um, arguing for what they should come up with is, you know, like domains like .com, .biz, .org, .edu. There should be one called Dot Kids, um, mm. that, and we wrote a piece, we wrote it for National Review, and the basic argument was, it's not anti free speech to have a domain that is safe for kids, right? Mm -hmm. You can adults can go anywhere they want, kind of thing, but if you had this sort of dedicated thing that was only for kids, you could actually very easily create hardware for kids' first computers that wouldn't go outside of the dot kids domain and there would be rules about what could be on the kids internet in effect and so big corporations would love it right i mean disney would be all over this all those guys would be on it because they have no problem putting out family fair kind of stuff yeah and um uh and there was some effort in part inspired by our piece to come up with legislation about this um a few years ago but i don't it just, I, I never understood. It seems like such a no brainer for both Democrats and Republicans. Cause like what, what's what, you know, I never encountered a particularly good, um, counter argument to it, you know? Um, and you could have I parents set up, you know, change the setting when their kids turn 18 or whatever. Yeah. Um, I guess it would be cause like, so I just Googled YouTube kids cause I thought, I thought there mm -hmm. was one and there is one. So I wonder mm -hmm. if now there's just no, no, no necessity for an actual law. Like I do think a lot, there's Facebook messenger for kids. Yeah. But my point is, I don't think is good, but I, it doesn't I've trap seen, the kids in it. And he has to be a gated yes. community oh, I see. that prevents that kids from leaving got kids. Okay. Right. And you know, you can't like if, if, if your computer is at, is basically, for, I'm sure there's better technical terms for this. We can ask Klon, but if it's mm -hmm. basically hardwired to only be able to go to dot kids domains, not right. .edu or .org or .biz or .ru, which is yeah. really terrible things. Never mind the dark web, right? Um, uh, you have, it's just a safe space. And we have the concept of safe spaces for kids is well established in the culture. I mean, that's why you have G ratings. It's why you have, you know, drug-free school zones. You can go down a long list. Right. And um, it would... Just like you guys don't have kids yet. It is it is a terrifying thing to leave your kids alone with um a fully functioning, you know, computer or tablet oh or gosh. whatever um at a very young age. And you know, I know part of the argument is just don't give them one and there's some merit to yeah. that. But like if you're gonna do it, like one of the reasons we gave my daughter a phone early is because she's an only child and like yeah. knowing how to find her and basically I use the location tracker thing on the phone basically is like a wildlife tracker for both my, yeah. I call it, I call it my wife tracker. And, um, and so like, I often will check it to see if she's close to coming home. So I, you know, quickly load the dishwasher at the last minute, seem like a conscientious <laughs> husband. Um, yeah. 
It seems like I have a lot of young cousins. It seems like it's getting harder and harder to prevent kids from having the phone because everyone else yeah. has one. And then, and then you get into the, the argument of like, well, are they left out from everyone else's conversation? Right. Which can be just as damaging. Which is again, this is the argument to make it like 18 and older before you yeah. can do a yeah. lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So anyway, back to Arthur. I, you know, I love Arthur. I am deeply indebted to him because he's the guy who brought me back to AI as we discussed. Um, and I really did learn an enormous number of things from Arthur. It's funny though, like this is the weedy eggheady portion of today's podcast. Um, the good I have part. this long-standing argument that, that neoconservatism isn't what people call neoconservatism. There was a hilarious, not to get sidetracked, there's a hilariously bad piece at the Federalist that was arguing that the neocons want to go to war with Russia so they can take back, they can take over the, they can reconquer the Republican party. And, um, which a not true, but B <laughs> like, like what? don't support, um, Ukraine during this moment of terrible aggression because it might empower Liz Cheney yeah. <laughs> is really not a super like moral or patriotic argument, but, yeah. and like the people they listed as neocons, you know, like Roger Wicker, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I texted pod this thing, that thing, John Padora's and he was like, Oh yeah, I think he was at alcove number two at city university with Irving crystal. It's like, what that Roger Wicker. And like, um, and so anyway, like, the, the word neocon has simply become sort of very much like, you know, fascist became, you know, where Orwell wrote in politics, the English language that fascist has come to mean anything not desirable. Neocon has sort of come to mean sort of something similar. And yeah, and I get that. And uh, I've you know, experienced that firsthand in recent weeks when I whenever I tell Trumpy people I meet, but I work for you. Oh, really? There you go. <laughs> Scoff at you, neocon. And, All the um, neocons of the AI orbit. Okay. Um, but like, I'm willing to defend neocon foreign policy. But like, like my point, my gripe is that the whole idea that foreign policy. Oh, we got into this a little bit with Paul Miller in the yeah. beginning of the week, which I got a lot of great feedback about that podcast. Um, that was a good one. I learned a lot um, from that one. But like, like neo the neocons who became synonymous with foreign policy, um, were second wave, right? They were Gene Kirkpatrick and and that crowd, the Commentary Magazine crowd. That was a 1970s thing, and um, the first round of neocons were almost purely domestic policy people. They were refugees from sort of great society and new left radicalism. People like. Um, or from like Trotskyism, people like Irving Kristol and Nat Glazer, and they founded this magazine called The Public Interest, which had no foreign policy whatsoever. And actually, Irving Kristol's foreign policy was not neoconservative. It was much more sort of, you know, sort of uh, nationalist, non-interventionist in some ways. He wrote pieces about getting out of NATO. I mean, like, um, people just don't understand the history of any of this stuff. And But the original neocons were these people who um, realized they, they sort of like, Michael Novak, who used to have the office next to mine when I first worked at AI almost 30 years ago, you know, he defined a neocon as um, a liberal with three teenage daughters. Um, <laughs> Irving Crystal defined a neocon as a liberal mugged by reality. And what they meant by that stuff was that the excesses of the new left in the 1960s, the excesses of the great society, this belief, this absolute belief in the power of government to fully transform society in all of these sort of pie-eyed and radical and, and utopian ways, 
was causing a lot of harm and wasn't going to work. And so what those neocons did, uh, people like Daniel Bell, who re later rejected the label, whatever, um, is, and this is sort of what William F. Buckley said. He said, you know, the, the thing about those neocons was that they brought what he said was the language of sociology in prior to, to conservatism. Prior to that generation, conservatism was much more sort of uh, Catholic, you know, uh, Aristotelian. Um, I mean, I'm not saying there weren't Protestants. There were plenty. There were also plenty of Jews. But um, uh, it was arguments from first principles, sort of. It was deductive from first principles kind of thing. And the neocons came in with slide rules and, and computer programs and regression analysis and data and social science surveys. And they said, yeah, it turns out that like all the stuff that they were saying from principle is actually proven by reality. And that's what I always thought of. I mean, like Arthur is a neocon in that sense. Mm -hmm. He's one of these guys who like used to be this serious liberal. He got caught up yeah. in sort of social science. He read the bell curve. He said, this is just fascinating stuff. He went and got a PhD from Rand. You know, there was a time when Arthur and I were the only two people at AI who, because of our at least undergraduate records, could not get a job, could not have gotten a job as um, RAs <laughs> that um, uh, today, uh, never mind become oh, scholars. Really? I mean, yeah, Arthur went to a, literally went to, a, he was a French horn player for the oh, yeah. um, Barcelona Symphony. And mm -hmm. he went, he got his BA from a, it was a correspondence school BA. He did it by mail. Oh, and, wow. And oh, then he sort of had this epiphany and decided he wanted to be a real social scientist and, um, and ended up going to Rand and, and becoming a huge number cruncher. And the product of his number crunching revealed like, holy crap, a lot of these conservative principles are verifiable by reality. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and he's always, I don't, I have no idea what his like core, I mean, he had to sort of fly the flag for AI's foreign policy stuff, but you'd always tell it wasn't like his major comfort zone. Um, yeah. Not that he disagreed with it per se. I don't think he would have gotten the job if he did, but it was, it was much more, the stuff he loved to talk about was like human flourishing and happiness and, and finding meaning in your life and all that kind yeah. of stuff. And loneliness and loneliness. And it's a very sort of neocon kind of approach to things, but yeah. you're not allowed to call that kind of stuff neocon anymore because now it means you know bagel snarfing warmongers um <laughs> well i guess i'm a neocon in that sense because um, i i love that stuff yeah um i think it's really interesting but there is just something about happiness research that just bugs me <laughs> i mean it really does um it's I, I thought that was an odd section when you were talking about how you hate it when people are sharing in joy at concerts or whatever. <laughs> yeah, well, I, didn't know you I thought were that it was funny. Throat, Jonah. I thought it was funny, and I didn't find it surprising. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there's, like a, there's, a, there's a particularly Jewish sort of, you know, approach to these things. Just sort of like, you know, who are you to be happy? <laughs> you know <laughs> um, yeah remember, yeah it's sort of like the old there's a really old i'm sure i've told it before but there's an old borscht belt joke about um uh there's a jew old jewish guy crossing the street and he falls down and somebody rushes over to help him and he puts a is like his jacket underneath his head and he says are you comfortable are you comfortable and the <laughs> old jewish guy says 
I make a living. <laughs> you know, I've heard that before. I've heard that one. That's um, a good one. And uh, yeah, just just like unbridled enthusiasm has always made me, you know, sort of want to flip the safety on my rifle. Um, <laughs> it's just it, it makes me nervous. Um, I, I, I have my only qualm with with Arthur Brooks, mm-hmm. and like I said, I'm a huge fan. I've read pretty much everything he's ever written. Is when you guys were talking about people that are just always happy all the time. Uh, how that bothers you. He mm-hmm. seems like that type of guy. And maybe maybe I'm wrong, but he that's seems to point, have actually. this cheeriness about him that's just constant, which I appreciate. But and he was like, Yeah, that bothers me too. And I was like, dude, I'm pretty sure you count. <laughs> like, I don't know you that much, but like I think you fall in that category. Yeah, I think is part of that. I mean, I'm not I'm not saying he's insincere or inauthentic. In no, I know, and I don't I mean, mean I, to accuse him of that either. I don't but I really don't. He's he's when he's performing for want of a better word, like mm, when he's sure. trying to make a public case, he sure. is in crazy high energy, but you know, I've talked yeah. to him in private and he's much more, I mean, he, he is more optimistic than, than I normally yeah. am comfortable with, but like it's, <laughs> it's much more manageable in person. Yeah. Um, I, I, him, yeah. I, I got the sense that he's probably a bit more subdued and introverted in private conversation, but he isn't a public forum like that. Yeah. But he's also one of these guys, he's, you know, it's like sharks, you know, they, um, if they stop swimming, they'll die. Oh, yeah. Right. He's one of these guys is always moving. I mean, he's always. I'd use like, that analogy, too, for people. Thinking about the next five things he wants to do. He's got a crazy work ethic. Um, yeah. And he also, I mean, I mean, I have other gripes. I like I used to always make this joke about at the beginning of my. I do this speech every year at World Forum, this AI conference. And I'd always begin with some jokes making fun of Arthur. And <laughs> the one that he laughs at and people laughed at and, but you could tell it kind of stung was I always used to say, you know, it's a very weird fit for a stodgy think tank to have a president who dresses like he is the gay editor of a German fitness magazine. Um, <laughs> you know, Cause he would wear these suits that you're just unbelievable. And like, yeah. um, he's, he's a real fashionista in a way that like, I do not associate with the American Enterprise Institute, um, <laughs> having known it for almost 40 years now. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, what else to talk about? Um, Brooks did make one more thing on this. We're not going to let this spread die. Brooks did make <laughs> a very interesting point about um, the, the strange sex recession in America. Mm-hmm. There are fewer abortions now because less and less people are having sex. Mm-hmm. And it made me think of Barry Weiss actually had a very interesting podcast maybe a few months ago now. I can't remember. Time is an odd blur. But she interviewed some random OnlyFans model. Mm -hmm. And the model talked about how people, the people, first of all, anyone who would pay for pornography has to be strange to begin with when Within two seconds of Googling, you can find a lifetime of it for three. Is that true? Well, <laughs> I don't know. This is what I've been told, Jonah, by um, the perverted pe- people here at the American I'll be right Enterprise. back. Check the show notes. <laughs> we will never put Pornhub in the show notes. I want to be very clear about that. Yeah. Your kids can listen to this podcast. I would encourage you. Other sites may be put in there instead, but... The um, she asked the model about what the people. Why do people pay you? Mm-hmm. Why is this a thing? Do people just want naked pictures or videos? Why would they pay money for them? And the model gave an answer like, 
No, they don't want that. They want a simulated girlfriend experience. Yeah. They want 100%. personal messages and affection 100%. Yeah. and pictures and things that they think are taken just for them and all yeah. of that and genuine attention that they want is essentially a synthetic relationship. Like people want to live in a synthetic world of chat boards and Zoom calls and the online metaverse. takeout. The metaverse, yes, rather than in reality. And that's a scary trend. And how we pull people, how people can be pulled or forced out of that rabbit hole is difficult to know. It's going to take a lot of, it takes a lot of self-motivation that people may either lack or have, or just be too complacent to indulge. Yeah. I mean, like I, I've seen interviews with like professional escorts, you know, where, you know, the, your Cinemax mind wants to think about it's just nonstop sex stuff, but a lot of it is that girlfriend experience kind of thing. Yeah. And that's in so many ways. That's so much sadder. Um, oh, yeah, like, I get paying for sex. I'm not saying I do it, but I understand <laughs> it conceptually, but paying for love seems like an oxymoron to me, but you know, yeah. people, some people do it. Um, um, so speaking of not necessarily paying for love, but love in the wrong places, um, yeah. <laughs> you, you were saying that you want to talk about, uh, Ryan, about this congressman well, who's in some trouble. Yeah, he's in some trouble to say the least. Uh, U.S. Congressman Van Taylor from Texas has ended his campaign for reelection after he admits to an affair. That's and after he won the primary, right? He So that's what's interesting. Um, he was, he was forced into a primary runoff. Uh, and then an hour later he announced he was quitting. So I don't, I don't if he won, I'm not sure he would have announced this is kind of my thinking. Um, but we'll put the, we'll put the article in the Texas Tribune in the show notes, but it's kind of, a, it's an amazing read. There's a few paragraphs of like explaining the election, his quote, like I'd made a horrible mistake. I had an affair. It was wrong. And then you get about to the middle and they drop, I think they buried the lead here. It says his mistress is known as a former jihadist who was once married to a commander for the Islamic state. Tabloids have referred to her as an ISIS bride. This guy's mistress was an ISIS bride and he got away with it for, for so many years. Somebody in here, I forgot where, I don't know if it's in this article or if it's in Politico. Another congressman was like, yeah, you can't mess with the ISIS bride. <laughs> as, if it, as if it was like a thing that people everybody knew it's it's ridiculous and and is she still a jihadi type or no okay they, so breitbart who, who broke the story um which irks me but um they they had a link to a cnn interview she did a couple years ago um and it was like this full 10 minute interview about how she escaped and like how she was brainwashed and, and how she rehabbed out of jihad. And, uh, so it's a heartwarming like, story. Yeah. De exactly. De-radicalization. Um, yeah, that was, but he, and he was, he was married or is married three kids. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really sad, really sad for them. And just kind of a sad story, but like, uh, yeah, I thought it was, it's, um, good fodder. I mean, it's, it's, it's just weird how so much of this stuff feels like the guys in the writer's room that are yeah. writing our timeline in the space right. time continue are exhausted. 
It's like, right. oh, let's, uh, affair right. is not interesting anymore. They you know, Republicans do that all the time. Let's let's make her an ISIS war bride. Yeah, um, exactly. The yeah. Republican from Texas. Um, <laughs> they they all went to Harvard, of course, much like Arthur Brooks. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah I, I don't know what I, I don't know that I have I have a huge amount to add to that um it kind of it's sort of a res ipsa loquitur right i mean it's, it kind of speaks for itself um, <laughs> that's what that phrase means what would you it like does. to win best picture jonah because we mentioned movies earlier and then didn't follow up on it uh, yeah so what what is God, what has been nominated hell of a way with segues can i just yeah. say what has been well, nominated? Well, that anecdote going to go right <laughs> in fairness that's just uh, a came out and that was like oh all right <laughs> I, I don't know what what has been nominated, um, and it feels like well, they 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 increased the number of nominees a few years ago to like fifteen or something, right? Yeah, it's a lot. So like, I don't feel like I feel like there are fifteen movies that came out in the last year that deserve to be nominated, but maybe I'm I'm wrong about that. Um, I can read the list. How about we read the list and see how many you've seen? Okay, fair enough. Okay, <laughs> it's a long list. Oh, I know what you're going to pick. Okay, so Drive My Car. Never heard of it. It seems like a foreign film. Um, Belfast. Heard of it. It's supposed to be really great. Haven't seen it. Yep. Want to see it? Haven't seen it. Uh, I agree. King I Richard. I bet you there's an O'Sullivan's pub somewhere in the background. Yeah, I hope Just so. Just putting it out there. <laughs> I hope so. King Richard about the Williams sisters, the tennis duo. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't seen it. Yep. Coda. I've heard of it. I have no idea what it's about. See that it's on Apple TV. I haven't seen it. Yep. Licorice Pizza. Here it's great. Pod loved it. So did Rob Long. Would love to see it. Feel bad that I didn't see it. Okay. We are 0 for 5. Nightmare Alley. Know nothing about it. Okay. That has like the most star power, it seems, from this from this list. Um, uh, maybe not. Uh, the Power of the Dog. Heard about it. Meant to watch it. But then someone gave me a spoiler that kind of... Um, ruined my hopes that it was really all about dogs um yeah no not about guy did you see this i yeah regrettably yeah definitely not about dogs, not about dogs. Not about dogs. Yeah. um three more west side story okay i've I've not seen it didn't really want to see it but apparently it's it's much better than i hate the original hate it oh really hate it yeah and uh it just does not hold up over time mm-hmm. my daughter and i had a big musical uh phase where we would watch yeah. like guys and dolls and stuff love guys and dolls guys and dolls is great mm-hmm. uh but west side story is really annoying um <laughs> but it sounds like spielberg did a really good job and i wouldn't mind seeing it but i haven't yeah seen i it. saw i saw it I actually really loved it um yeah. my girlfriend and i saw it it uh it's just kind of like an old-fashioned big movie yeah like, there's just big dance numbers big musical numbers really well shot i mean it's spielberg so yeah i you should see it it's really i thought it was really good okay here's the last two you ready mm-hmm don't look up. Dear God. Not a joke. <laughs> Saw it. Not a joke. Hated it. Yeah. <laughs> Saw that one. Yeah. Yeah. That was nominated. And last but not least, Dune. All right. So um, I'm not sure Dune deserves it, but I saw it. <laughs> I think it deserves to be nominated. It certainly deserves to be nominated for like cinematography and some of that stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know that it's a best picture. Um yeah, I predict the winner will be either Belfast or West Side Story. Mm. 
I stand by it. Spielberg is just too powerful. Yeah. And like one of the things that Rob Long has taught me is that the people in the Academy who make these votes are mostly like old, retired Hollywood hacks yeah. who have a real bias towards movies that affirm their nostalgia for what movies mm -hmm. are supposed to be. So it sounds like win. Spielberg kind of scratched that itch. Yeah. Um, but given the controversies over in the Heights, maybe they, they don't go that way. I don't well, know. That was all that La La Land was. La yeah. La Land perfectly fits that description. For sure. Yeah. There's a, a lot of politics. can't sing or dance. It's terrific. It will break Listen. my heart if Don't Look Up look, wins because it will not be for the merits. It'll be purely political signaling. Yeah um yeah it just wasn't like i mean even if you, i have lots of friends who actually liked it and thought it was funny and all that kind of stuff and even some people who think it was important it was not great cinema no you know and and no. people who compare it to dr strange love um or being there make me very very angry because it's not even in the same category as those movies i uh oh, i just had a thought that's gone i'll be oh, I'll throw Go ahead, guy. Okay. I'll throw my meaningless opinion into the mix and say I hated Don't Look Up as much as you did. Power of the Dog, I thought, was the worst kind of pointless Oscar bait that sucked away two hours of my life. King Richard is quite <laughs> good. I don't think it should win an Academy Award for any reason, even though Will Smith is very strong in it. But it's, it's an enjoyable movie. I'm sure it's heavily sanitized and not accurate and mm -hmm. manufactured in a lot of ways, but it's still fun to watch it's well made in every every conventional sense uh licorice pizza is the only other one on there i've seen and i enjoyed it but the premise of the film is still bizarre people who complain about the premise i don't think are wrong and you have to i, I could see why a lot of people would hate it because it's purely an ambling hangout movie Sort of like, mm -hmm. sort of like Richard Linklater doing yeah. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I didn't even realize until afterward when I went on Wikipedia that the majority of characters in the movie are supposed to be real people from Hollywood history, including hmm. oh, yeah. I think the couple is based on two people Paul Thomas Anderson saw back in back in the seventies. Great soundtrack though, really great use of old pop songs, and I I always. Something I really like about Anderson that most other directors don't do is that instead of songs popping up for five seconds and then instantly disappearing, he'll play songs song. in full and yeah, hold yeah. on them and let leave them on extended scenes with no other dialogue or music, just the perfectly chosen song and the cinematography. And there are a lot of great scenes like that. Did you guys ever see American Graffiti? I think it's flat and boring, even though I like the soundtrack. Um, so I don't love it either. I gotta be honest, but my understanding, you know, so American graffiti is the thing that created 1950s nostalgia in the 1980s. Yes. It led to happy days. Um, you know, Ron Howard's mm. in it, you know, um, yeah. and, um, but my understanding, and I, I'm sure someone in the comments will correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I remember reading a George Lucas biography a long time ago. And um, the claim was made that the real genius breakthrough by Lucas in that movie was he is the guy who pioneered this idea of the soundtrack being the, 
I don't, I don't mean like soundtrack, like the score to West Side Story, but mm-hmm. like this use of like on the in the script. Before you set the scene, he would have at the top of the page in the background, uh, stand by your man or whatever is playing in the background. And it was a way to mm. evoke that yeah. nostalgia you get sort of like at the Super Bowl halftime, you know, like this nostalgia for the songs of my youth oh, yeah. kind of thing. And it was atmospherically like a major driver of the plot that like for even my generation, I don't feel because I didn't grow up listening to like late fifties, early sixties doo-wop as like the, the soundtrack of my life. Mm -hmm. But that's like, like since then that has become, you know, it's sort of like my daughter just had to watch citizen Kane for a film class. And I warned her that, it's really not a great movie by our, by today's standards in the sense <laughs> that the stuff that made it legendary and pathbreaking and innovative became part and parcel of normal filmmaking mm-hmm. so that you see these scenes that were the first time anyone had used cameras this way or set up shots that way that are just utterly conventional to us now because yeah um they were so good and so interesting that everybody copied it and they just became sort of the grammar yeah. of filmmaking in a lot of ways and there's a lot of that kind of stuff like unshen on you know which is very famous avant-garde you know movie it's just stony garbage by you know in a lot of ways by today's standards but it's a great example of how historical biases and presentism color how we view things in the past like people say like Pilgrim's Progress was like the first novel or whatever. It's mm-hmm. a really crappy novel, but we're comparing <laughs> it to like yeah. Huckleberry Finn rather than comparing right. it to the the non the null set of non novels that had never you know we're comparing it to the right. Canterbury Tales or whatever you know. Right. <laughs> and um, it's just something to keep in mind when you try to think about these things historically. And it, it's one of the things that make film buffs so good at what they're about their sort of expertise but also so annoying because you mm-hmm. watch these movies with some of them and say, you don't understand that was the first time that shot ever happened i was like right. okay but that's not me enjoying <laughs> the movie that's trivia yeah. you know yeah right right um, i watched citizen kane on a plane not the best place to watch it. no would not recommend people I, should just watch the rosebud episode of the simpsons or one of the many other episodes of the simpsons apparently citizen kane of this there I'll tell you the other problem. I think we must have talked about this before, um, but since you brought up the Simpsons, um, I cannot tell you how many people. Maybe we, I'm pretty sure we did talk about this before. How many college kids I've met in my years of speaking on college campuses where they think the lines in the Simpsons making fun of classic movie lines originated with the Simpsons. Yes. Oh, <laughs> you know the, the the classic example of this is now who's being naive. I can't tell you how many people I've met. Who don't realize that's a reference to the godfather um mm. and um and why they still think it's funny um is kind of a little weird to me because the whole point of it is this you know deep reference deep cut to the a reference to something else but yeah um there's a lot of that um mm. oh just speaking about so i saw i was watching morning joe today or yesterday and mike barnacle Oh, yeah. Um, someone was saying something about how terrible things are in Ukraine, whatever. I'm, and uh, in, in the need for civic understanding and historical knowledge, whatever, something like that. 
And Barnacle says, isn't it a huge problem that these kids today, they know more about what's on Netflix tonight than what you're talking about? And it was, I thought it was a really interesting sort of little slip because Netflix isn't like HBO, right? Which actually has like a schedule or yeah. never mind like NBC. Yeah. Everything that's on Netflix right now is on Netflix tonight simultaneously. Right. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And it was just a you weird actually, little, you know. You actually have to kind of dig to find out what comes on Netflix that month. Mm. <laughs> you know, like it's not it's not really advertised. Yeah. He um, just picked a technology word that he thought <laughs> worked, sounds like. All right. So this may or may not be the greatest or the worst drive time podcast that we've ever done i really have no freaking clue oh it's far from do we ever (laughs) um do we um, ever know i just want it to be in the meaty part of the bell curve right where people are not yeah i think it was um, fine i don't we don't have the usual manic energy that we get in the morning um no i I blame myself for that Um, that's all right but we got to figure out when we're going to start doing these things because I don't think end of day on Thursdays is is a recipe for long term success. So we'll no. figure out what to do. There are people I'm not going to name names who think that we should just get rid of the solo podcast entirely and do sort of more produced, sort of scripted monologue things for special occasions. I'm I'm open to suggestions from the readership, whether that's a, a listenership, whether that's a good or bad idea i I do not want to put you guys on the spot because you have competing interests and among them uh the fact that you don't want to be insulting to me but uh (laughs) i just think i should come on all the time for my own career enhancement like jack did and i really (laughs) care less about ryan or what people say um uh, the amazing thing guy is how well you conceal those sorts of motivations (laughs) thank you um uh, yeah, no, if we were, if we were back in the studio all the time, that might happen, but like, it's, we live in a brave new world and, um, you know, uh, um, you know, and, 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 you know, love Jack, but you know, Jack is, a is, was a strange creature and not to say that you're not a strange creature, but, um, I think. We can all Anyone who would it. want to work for you, Jonah, must be a strange creature. Yeah, and try living, try living with him for a bit. He's a strange creature. <laughs> <laughs> kidding, kidding. Um, no, you're not, but it's fine. Um, <laughs> all right, guys, I think I'm done. It's cocktail yeah, I'm hour done for the day. Yeah, and uh, we got a. Uh, but uh, just a reminder to listeners, fans of the Dispatch, every Tuesday now, 8 p.m. That's right. Rotating cast of characters. It's. Um, Sort of like laughing. We're going to do dispatch <laughs> lives and uh, you can tune in and there will always be someone from the, I, I won't call us the fantastic four, but someone from the dispatch live, the dispatch podcast crew, me, Sarah, David, and Steve, and maybe sometimes all four of us, but we rotate hosting on it. It's a lot of fun. It's a little more relaxed. Um, and uh, it's a work in progress, uh, but it's only available to members. And, um, that's one of the many, many reasons you should become a member of the dispatch community. Mm -hmm. So with that, um, I'll just say, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
countdown. Oh, it gave me like a three second. Oh, it's very thing. exciting. But this is gold. Now. This this, this banter <laughs> yeah, has to go in the podcast. This, is, this has been captured. <laughs> um, all right. Um... 